Hi, everybody. CJ here, your one-man revolution, guerrilla scholar warrior, and renaissance man for the new dark age. Back with another installment of the Dangerous History Podcast. And this is going to be episode 125 of the Dangerous History Podcast, and we're going to do something I haven't done in a very, very long time. And that is respond to some questions and comments from you, the listener. And I'll be calling this listener emails number six, and... It's somewhat inaccurate because it's actually not just emails. It includes questions from social media as well. And in fact, this particular episode, there are far more of the latter than there are of emails. But I've decided, what the hell, I've already been calling these sorts of episodes listener emails episodes for a while. Why not just keep going with it? Anyway, it has been a long while since I've done one of these. In fact, I just checked before starting to work on this episode, and I discovered that I haven't done one of these sorts of shows in almost exactly six months. In fact, I think it was six months to the day of when I'm speaking to you when I'm recording this right now was the last time that I published a listener emails episode. So way back in mid to late May of this year, 2016, and I'm recording this in November. So it's partly my fault. I've been sidetracked doing a bunch of other things on the show, but it's partly the listener's fault as well. I haven't seemed to have gotten as many emails with the sorts of questions that are conducive to this kind of show uh, in a while. For the most part, what I'm looking for are questions that don't have a simple factual answer, not the kind of question you could answer by simply just Googling something up or putting something in Wikipedia. That's not the kind of question I want here. Also, I don't want a question that is so huge that it would require one or perhaps an entire series of Dangerous History podcast episodes to cover. Now, in some cases, it's at my discretion as to what sort of question I think would fit well with this sort of show or not. But anyway, a question like, what do you think about the French Revolution is not good for this sort of show because it's like, well, um, if and when, and it's likely eventually I will cover the French Revolution, that's probably going to be a many-part series. It's not something that I can cover adequately in a few minutes as part of a listener email show. Now, I suppose I could, in theory, give you like the very, very basics of what I think about it, but that sort of a thing I'd rather just wait and eventually get to a massive focus on that as part of a series. So questions have to be not too big, not too small, and they also have to be questions that are somewhat open to kind of interpretation and sort of my thoughts and opinions on things as well, because in my experience that tends to provide the best sorts of meaty answers that I can share with you. So in part, This dearth of listener emails episodes is my fault, and in part it's your fault as well. But um, I got the itch to do one recently, and I had a few emails that I'd accumulated and hadn't had any that were conducive to this sort of a thing in a while. And so I put out the call in the private Facebook group for Patreon supporters of this show, Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors, and got back a whole bunch of responses of potential questions. And I chose a bunch of them. I couldn't choose all of them because of time and length. Some of them I thought didn't quite fit this this format of this show for one reason or another. And some of them just simply came in a little bit too late after I had already started working on this episode. So anyway, thanks to everybody who submitted questions. Whether I used your question or not, I appreciate you coming up with and submitting those for me. All right, so before we launch into it, though, I have to cover a few items of housekeeping, have some gratitude to express. First off, Patreon shoutouts, big thanks to P.S. Glory, Antoine, James, Ian, Alex, Chris, 
Ryan, Joaquin, Nick, and Wes. Thank you all very much for stepping up to support the Dangerous History Podcast over at patreon.com slash profcj. I very much appreciate your support. It allows me to keep doing what I'm doing and keep improving it as I go. And just as a reminder to all of you listening that... If you sign up to support the Dangerous History Podcast via Patreon at a dollar per episode or more, not only will you be helping out and supporting and helping to build this thing that you love, this show, but also you will get access to bonus episodes that are available in Patreon just to my supporters that are available nowhere else, so you get some extra doses of Dangerous History. And in addition, you'll be eligible to join the private Facebook group that I mentioned before. So I hope if you're not already a regular supporter of the show via Patreon, you'll consider doing so. Last, I've got a big Amazon wishlist thank you. I've got my DHP Amazon wishlist that I link to in show notes, and it contains things that I would find useful to this show. It's generally a combination of history books and also pieces of equipment, you know, microphones and In this case, it was a table. And big thanks go out to Beth. I mentioned this in the last episode I I made, that if anyone wanted to do me a solid, there was this thing at the top of my wish list that I really felt I could use, but I was a bit short on cash. Still am, by the way. Um, And that is this tabletop monitor stand. Huge thanks go out to Beth for being the first on the draw after I I mentioned that. I think within just a a few days or so, that thing showed up at my door. And it's such a simple little thing. It's a little table that goes on top of a big table or desk to put a monitor on. What I'm actually using it for, and I'm actually using it right now and looking at it as I'm speaking to you, what I'm using it for is I'm putting it on the table where I have my laptop and uh, some other pieces of hardware and recording gear, and I normally have it kind of put away when I'm just, you know, typing stuff on the computer, but when it comes to recording, like I'm doing right now, I simply place it on the table, kind of over the laptop, and then I have a foldable, adjustable wooden book stand that I put on top of this table to hold my notes. And I'm going to put both the tabletop stand and the book stand that I place on top of it in the show notes in case you don't know what I'm talking about. You might find it interesting if you do any sort of work like this. But the thing is, very often when I'm doing Dangerous History podcast episodes, I have extensive notes and I've tried different ways of holding those notes. I mean, a lot of times I would just simply hold them in my hand in front of myself as I spoke, but it really gets annoying and tedious, and sometimes I'm sitting there recording for an hour or two, and so I decided I needed to figure something out, and to figure something out that worked with my current arrangement of the table I have for my laptop and how I have my my scissor mic stand set up coming in from the side, from a shelf to my right, and eventually I, I realized I wanted something that would hold my notes at eye level when I'm seated at my desk, and that would hold it basically on, just on the other side of where my the back of my microphone is, so I could kind of look past the microphone and the mic stand and see it anyway. Probably too much detail, probably too much information, but uh, anyway, it is a simple little table that, to me and my setup anyway, has made a world of difference, so thanks again, Beth. And as always, I'll have a link to my DHP Amazon wish list in the show notes for this episode. If you have a burning problem of some money or some Amazon credit that you don't know what to do with, hey, feel free to use it to 
help out this show, that's another way you can help me out. So onward and upward, here we go into the emails. Now, the first email is an email from way back, actually from shortly after I published that last listener emails episode that I mentioned a moment ago. That last one back in May, one of the listener emails that I responded to way back then, and the episode I believe was 99, if I'm not mistaken, of the Dangerous History Podcast, one of the questions I responded to had to do with kind of my interpretation of Islam and how the radicalism of Islam and so on should be seen and should potentially be handled. Then I got this email from Max shortly after I published that episode with some of his thoughts on the whole question, which I I thought was an interesting enough email that I would share it with you. And Max, of course, was kind enough to give his okay on me sharing it in the next email episode I did. Of course, um, had no idea that it would be six months until I would do another one. So, Max, I hope you're still listening. Uh, I did not forget about your email. I, I kept it, you know, saved in a folder where I save these sorts of emails and simply salted it away until I finally got around to doing another one of these. So here's the email from Max. I listened to your comments about combating radical Islam in your listener emails number five show, and I had another thought to share about why Islam seems so far behind Christianity and Judaism when it comes to secularism, modernization, etc. Perhaps it's because Islam is a much quote-unquote younger religion than all the other major world religions. Judaism and Hinduism have origins dating back to 500 BC, and even Christianity is right around 2,000 years old. Muhammad died in the early to mid-600s, meaning that, by comparison, the other religions have had at least half, if not a full millennia, more to mellow out, if you will. If you date Islam to around 600, then it's roughly 1,400 years old. What was Christianity up to around the year 1,400? Well, they still had the Spanish Inquisition. They were at least 100 years away from the Protestant Reformation, women's rights were non-existent, people were burned at the stake for being accused as witches, as well as other crimes of heresy, they weren't far removed from underwriting the death and destruction wrought by massive holy wars in the Middle East, and the Hussites were still heading over there from time to time in the early 15th century. Things didn't get much better over the next 300 to 400 years, and you still had events like the Salem Witch Trials, all of Europe's religious outcasts colonizing North America, and women's rights didn't really start to gain equal footing in our society until 1920, and some would argue haven't reached equal footing even today. Now, this is nominally characterizing our Western culture as purely Christian, but I don't think that's too far off considering it's only in the last 50 to 60 years that the influence of church on our society has waned from where it was even 100 years ago. Anyway, just some thoughts kind of randomly thrown out there, which I know you enjoy, and may be worth sharing on the next email show. I think that overall it's really whitewashing religious history when some people look at the things going on within the radical elements of Islam and say that they're savages and it's because Islam is so fundamentally different from Christianity and Judaism that's the reason for the impasse between the two religions in the modern era. When you look at the development of Christianity over the centuries, you might argue that Islam is simply going through their religious growing pains, no differently than Christianity did, and doing many of the same things that Christians did back then. I think your point about letting our modern pop culture seep into their society would go much further to bridge the gap than using the threat of force. As those media and pop culture elements permeated our broadly Christian society, over the last 40 years or so, Christianity in the West has mellowed out dramatically. 
All right, and that's the end of Max's email, and I think it's a lot of thoughts worth considering. I've heard and read some other people express similar ideas as well on the matter. And I think there's something to it. I don't think it is the entire explanation for the the disparity at the moment between the tendency towards violence and like extremely, for lack of a better term, old fashioned views within different religions. And obviously the usual caveats of, I understand there are quite, for lack of a better term, modern, secular, friendly Muslims and so on, right? But still, I think it's fair to say that there's a disproportion in how prevalent the really old school fundamentalist views are within Islam relative to Christianity and Judaism. Now, of course, you can find extreme old school rigid fundamentalists in both Christianity and Judaism, no doubt. But again, I think there's a disparity in proportion. Not that I have any any hard numbers to back this up, but I think most people, if they're being honest, would agree with that. And yeah, I think the time factor might be part of it. That that seems plausible to me. The only other things I would throw in, and, and this may be possibly echoing some of what I said in that previous listener emails episode, is that I think there's also the specific historical circumstances of the parts of the world wherein Islam has been dominant for over a thousand years. And one is that those parts of the world didn't really go through things like a full-blown scientific revolution and industrial revolution. Now, I know you can go back and find at certain points in Islamic history where the Islamic world was actually quite big into scientific inquiry and so on. I'm aware of those things, but I don't think, unless there's just something I don't know about in Islamic history, I don't think there was ever a full-blown scientific revolution within Islamic mainstream society in the way that there was within European society, say from the era of people like Galileo and Isaac Newton onward through the next several centuries. I don't think there was any ever anything like that um, within an Islamic society going further back. Again, I'm open to correction if there's something I'm missing. And again, I'm aware that there were some time periods in which some Islamic societies were doing a fair amount of science and whatever. And then there's never been anything comparable to an industrial revolution. And so in a way, you've got this situation where a lot of the parts of the world that are mostly Islamic, they're now kind of in the modern world, but they didn't they didn't go through the process to, to get there. They just sort of like had it dropped on them. I don't know how else to put it. So they've got access to modern communications technology and modern weaponry and all these sorts of things, but they didn't go through the process of evolving a society that created those things. And so on. this, this is how I think you can have this weird juxtaposition where terrorists who, at least according to a lot of their own rhetoric, want to turn back the clock hundreds of years, are using tools like laptop computers, satellite internet connections, smartphones, and modern weaponry to try to turn the clock back. It's kind of interesting. And then the other specific circumstance that I'm pretty sure I did mention a bit in my previous coverage of this topic is that also I don't think it's a coincidence that these are, in most cases, parts of the world that the United States especially and the rest of the West in general has been really screwing with badly for a century or more. And that atmosphere tends to cause 
people to sort of double down on their fundamentalism as a reaction against being aggressed upon by outside alien cultures. And it tends to empower those within the society who are already of that sort. Just imagine if in the future, the United States becomes a very weak shadow of its former self, and there's some new superpower that's of an alien culture and of an alien religion that almost no Americans share. And it, and it could be Islam in this hypothetical example. It could be some other new religion we haven't even heard of yet. It could be, I don't know, devout Hindus. I, I don't care what. But something that's very different from what most Americans' religious beliefs are. And imagine that this new superpower with this alien belief system and culture does the same sorts of stuff to America that America and some of its allies have been doing in the Islamic world for, in a lot of ways, the last hundred years, but especially in the last 40 or so. Do you think that those actions would cause Americans to give up their faith and either become secular atheists or adopt the faith of those who are bombing them, droning them, invading them, etc.? seems to me pretty unrealistic to expect that's what would happen. Instead, it seems to me the more likely thing would be that Americans would like double or triple down on the most extreme fundamentalist version of their faith and use it as kind of a tool in the toolbox of fighting back against the invaders and occupiers and so on. So anyway, Max, I think you've got a good point. I think it seems like that might be part of the scenario as well, but I would say also at the end of the day, I would still say that part of the stew are the things that I mentioned before. So thanks for the email though, Max. Appreciate it. Next question comes from Penny from the Facebook group. And Penny writes, like some of you, I refuse to vote, though I do on the very local level and for propositions. My question to you is, what or whom do you think could convince you to bother voting? Yeah, I I had to think about this for a while. It's been quite a few years since I voted, and I haven't been particularly tempted back into the uh, voting booth ever since. Last time I cast a ballot was for Ron Paul in a Republican primary, and Ron Paul was as moderate as I was willing to vote for at that time. And I have to say, I've become much less moderate in the years since then. And I can't foresee very many instances in which I'd be likely to want to go vote again. I know there's the argument from some libertarians and anarchists that voting is always a violation of the non-aggression principle. I see it as more of a gray area myself. I mean, I personally, my default position is don't vote. But I can foresee potential scenarios in which it might be possible to vote for some sort of reduction in statism and consequent increase of personal freedom in such a way that you're not simultaneously voting for things that will potentially infringe upon the rights of others. And I know all the other arguments against voting across the board as a moral thing. I'm familiar with them. I just personally don't agree that it is 100% impossible to ever vote in any scenario in which you're not violating the non-aggression principle. I think those cases where you could vote without violating the NAP are, are very rare and unlikely scenarios, but I can foresee them potentially. Now, um, me thinking hypothetically, what might it take for me to vote? Well, I might consider, and I'm not not even saying that, yes, I definitely would, but I might consider casting a ballot 
for a major party candidate who actually had a reasonable chance of winning. If that candidate's platform closely resembled something along the lines of, say, the beliefs of Murray Rothbard or Lysander Spooner. But nothing short of that would entice my vote at this point, and I still can't guarantee that I'd vote, even if the ghost of Rothbard was on the ticket of a major party. And if such a candidate was on the ticket of a major party, I might only be tempted to vote if, number one, the person had a snowball's chance at hell of winning. I mean, if every single poll showed them down by 50 points, me voting doesn't matter. Uh, If it's for president, I would only do it if I was in a state that was actually a swing state. Because, of course, you know, in this election, if you voted in Utah, your vote didn't mean a damn thing because Utah was going to go 78% Trump or whatever it did, um, regardless. And the same thing, you know, if you lived in Vermont and you went and voted for president, you are even more of a fool than just a typical voter because Vermont was going to go 70 some odd percent for Hillary Clinton no matter what. So that's the other thing I would I would keep in mind if we're talking about voting for president is, number one, the guy's basically got to be running on a platform of doing everything he possibly can to emasculate and eventually eliminate Leviathan, which is unlikely to ever have someone uh, advocating that be on a major party ticket. And then it would have to be a situation where, A, the overall election was competitive, and B the state that I lived in was a close swing state. And even then, I still can't guarantee I'd vote, but it would have to be something along those lines for me even to feel like, "Mm, maybe, I don't know, and have to like really kind of think about it. Now, the only other thing that might nudge me to vote at this point would be something like a referendum, a, a state or local ballot initiative or potential, you know, state amendment or whatever, that was one that would mean a drastic increase in individual liberty and or a drastic decrease in state power. Or conversely, I might consider voting against such a measure if it was a measure that was aimed to radically do the opposite. And again, I would only consider voting if I had reason to believe that the overall vote on that issue would be close. So, for example, I might consider voting if full across-the-board legalization of marijuana and or other drugs was on the ballot in Florida where I live. And I would only consider voting, honestly, though, if such a, such a measure was on the ballot and there was reason to believe that the vote might be close either way. Because if it's clear it's going to pass in a giant landslide, why would I bother going to vote? It's going to pass. If it's way down and it's destined to go down in flames by a landslide, why would I waste my time going to vote? But if it was some measure like that that was really an actual significant decrease in the state's ability to stomp all over people, and I thought it was going to be a close call, I might consider going and voting just on that. And then for all the candidates for office, you know, write in whoever, Malcolm Reynolds, Han Solo, Tyrion Lannister, the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man, whatever. And another example of the converse would be Florida currently does not have a state income tax. And if there was a state income tax initiative on the ballot and I thought it might be a close call that it might pass, I might consider voting because that actually does directly affect me and, and my freedom and whatever. And I think I already pay enough taxes to Florida anyway. 
however, most likely in Florida, given its current climate and current makeup and so on, the odds of a state income tax amendment passing seem ridiculously impossible. So I wouldn't worry about it too much. But in a scenario where it looked like it might pass, I might actually go vote just for that. In general, I feel that it's very unlikely I will ever vote again in the rest of my natural life. So, But anyway, those are a few very, very specific instances in which I might consider changing my mind on that. Next question comes from Ken in the Facebook group, and Ken says... With the recent election, another when the popular vote deviates from the electoral vote outcome, can you both examine why the electoral system was originally adopted, and if it still serves a purpose other than to allow certain parts of the country to have a disproportionate say in the presidential election? Okay, well, my answer to that is going to be kind of short. Coincidentally, as I was putting together material for this episode, Tom Woods did a recent episode on this question with a couple of historians, uh, Brian McClanahan and Kevin Gutzman as guests. And these two guys are much more of kind of fans of the Constitution and the Founding Fathers and whatnot than I am. But I think it's a good episode to listen to to hear some genuine experts on the history of kind of the the Federalist era and so on, talking about some of the main arguments in defense of the Electoral College. Basically, the argument of those who designed it was against democracy. It was you can't just have simple majority rule on something as important as choosing the president of the United States. There has to be kind of a filter. The election has to, you know, the people have some input, but it's sort of an indirect thing. That's how the election of U.S. senators originally was done, too, by the way. Voters didn't originally choose U.S. senators directly. Instead, they would elect a state legislature who would then in turn choose a senator from that state. And so part of it is this elitism slash anti-democratic attitude of a lot of the founding fathers, especially the Federalists who wrote and structured the Constitution. In addition, I think the Electoral College was in part designed to still have a certain amount of federalism in the sense of states are voting for president as states. Also, the way the Electoral College was originally designed and worked for the first few election cycles, it was originally designed and conceived of and operated in such a way that the electors were given much more independence than they have today. And so the original idea was, okay, each state is going to choose what, you know, supposedly, according to the Federalist scheme, are wise, enlightened, educated men from their state who are above average in their knowledge of current events and so on. And then these wise, educated electors from each of the states will meet together and cast ballots for the president. And so that was the idea, to try and have popular influence on the choosing of a president by having the voters of each state be able to vote for electors, but then have a filter against too much democracy and mob rule by having the electors themselves then be able to be kind of independent and use their own independent wisdom and so on to choose the president. Now, of course, I'm an anarchist, and uh, if I had been in the 1780s and had to pick a side within that paradigm, uh, if I had to pick a team, then I would be anti-federalist and opposed to the Constitution. But that said, I'm also not a dogmatic believer in the faith that more democracy always or even usually, gives you a better result. So the Electoral College is not something that I personally get very hepped up about one way or the other. 
And it seems to me like it's yet another issue where people in politics basically will just support whatever side of the argument happens to coincide with the interests of their political team at any given moment. So, in my mind, when there's a discrepancy between the winner of the popular vote and the winner of the Electoral College, it seems to me whoever loses the Electoral College but wins the popular vote, their supporters will complain but I think in most cases, if the shoe had been on the other foot, in other words, if, if it had been the other way around, if it had been the other way in, where Hillary Clinton won the Electoral College and Donald Trump won the popular vote, they would have just simply been on the other side of, of the argument. If that had been the case in this election, all these Hillary people who are saying, oh, the Electoral College is stupid and Hillary should be president, they'd be saying the opposite. They'd be saying, well, she won according to the Constitution. It's the Electoral College. She's the president. And, and likewise, the Trump people would equally be hypocrites if the shoe had been on the other foot. Right now, they'd be saying, well, Trump really should have been president. He got more votes. Electoral college is an outdated anachronism. So it's yet another one of these things where it seems like very few people in mainstream American politics are consistently either pro or, or against the electoral college, as much as the Democrats tend to be more across the board supportive of more democratic always equals better in politics. I can very easily see them had things been reversed and Hillary won the electoral college, Trump won the popular vote. They'd be saying right now how the electoral college is so important and such a wise idea. Now I can see how within the statist constitutionalist sort of paradigm, it makes sense by trying to make it impossible for someone to get elected president by basically winning landslides in a dozen or so of the nation's most densely populated counties. And I think that's part of the argument that uh, Gutsman and McClanahan were making on Tom Woods's show, aside from the historical reasons for it, was the idea that the Electoral College makes it tough for someone to get elected president, or actually impossible, by simply getting giant support in a couple of densely populated regions and having no support in the rest of the country. And there have been various memes floating around on the internet uh, since the election illustrating this, where they show you that, like, a majority of America's population lives in something like, I don't even remember, 15 counties. And so theoretically, it would be possible for a candidate in a straight-up popular vote, if that determined the presidency, to simply win giant majorities in those counties and not do so well in the entire rest of the country and become president. However, on the other hand, I can see how within the paradigm of democracy is always best, it would appear dumb to basically have, you could say, pieces of dirt being more really what's being represented in the Electoral College than the actual people. Of course, I'm within neither of these paradigms, the constitutionalist or the democracy is always best paradigms myself, so my solution is simply to not only abolish the Electoral College, but of course simultaneously abolish the presidency along with it. How likely is this to happen in the nearer future? Not very, but uh, it's my preference. And I'll just close this issue out by saying the origin of the whole idea of the Electoral College is something that I'm sure will come up when I go over the history of the Articles of Confederation era and then the writing and ratification of the Constitution, which is something that I have long intended and still intended to do an episode or more likely several episodes on in the future. But I've decided that for practical reasons, I can only slaughter one white whale at a time. And right now, that white whale that I'm working on is the not-so-civil war. Our next question comes from Jan in the Facebook group. And Jan asks, why was Carol Quigley's tragedy and hope ignored by almost everyone but the Birchers? 
I know that's an odd question, but I guess it's been bothering me since I read it. Thanks for the question, Jan. And I would say part of the answer on that particular book, let's be brutally honest. For the most part, not only is it a gigantic history book with very small font and I think no pictures, if I remember right, and those sorts of books are rarely bestsellers anywhere, especially in America. But in addition to that, most of the book, let's be honest, is dry and boring as hell. I've read it myself a long time ago, and I have to say, I did not enjoy most of it, even though Quigley clearly is a brilliant historian and intellectual, and you do get those little occasional fascinating snippets in that book where he talks about the kind of behind-the-scenes conspiracy-type stuff. But in between a lot of that is some pretty dense, boring kind of generic history that's pretty dry. So to be brutally honest, I think that's part of the answer. Now, you could probably find other books that have also been neglected that had some very important or potentially dangerous ideas in them that are much more readable. And so, you know, we can't place all the blame for the neglect of tragedy and hope purely on the fact that it's a gigantic, dense, and often fairly dry history book. I think that it's likely that part of the answer lies elsewhere, too. I think part of the answer to this question, and we could even extend this to films. Certain films and certain books, even when they're not dry, dense history books that are dangerous to the establishment, often get what I would call, for lack of a better term, censored by neglect. The media, including the publishers themselves and all the forms of media that review and talk about books and have authors on to discuss their books. And we could also throw in the equivalent things in regard to the film industry as well, has a massive amount of power to basically censor things by neglect or by other somewhat sneaky forms that don't really look like censorship if they choose to do so. They can decide which books and authors to give the spotlight to and which to simply ignore or to ridicule or just to marginalize until the book goes out of print and becomes scarce or the movie becomes almost impossible to find. And the movie Kill the Messenger comes to mind as a very recent example of a film that really was a very good movie. I mean, well-made, great actors, a very interesting story, but got almost no distribution, got almost no press, no promotion, and so as a result was just a tiny little almost insignificant blip on the movie scene back in 2014. By the way, if you want to jump in the Wayback Machine, I reviewed that movie way back about two years ago, and I had to drive something like three hours, I think, to find a theater that was actually playing it when it came out. Now, getting specifically to Tragedy and Hope, based on some of the things I've read and heard, Quigley himself seemed to suspect that there was some sort of a deliberate effort to suppress the book in kind of a subtle, low-key way, rather than by any sort of overt and thus more obvious and easy-to-spot and easy-to-prove effort of censorship. Quigley seemed to be frustrated at the neglect the book received from the publishers and the public, and he seems to have thought that the publishers were messing things up for the book. He was also angry that right-wingers such as, who was it, Cleon Skousen, I think, in Quigley's opinion, plagiarized whole chunks of the book and misrepresented a lot of what Quigley was arguing in the original book. And I'll link to some audio on YouTube of Quigley talking about the travails of getting the book published and distributed and all these sorts of things and other issues in the show notes. The audio isn't great on it, but it is interesting. 
And I'll just share with you one of the best summaries of this process whereby the media kind of does this soft censorship of books and movies that, you know, are, are too dangerous or what have you. And so listen to this passage, quote, For over half a century, America's vast literary culture has been disparately policed and imperceptively contained by state and corporate entities well-placed and perfectly equipped to wipe out wayward writings. As America does not ban books, other means, less evident and so less controversial, have been deployed to vaporize them. Some almost never made it into print, as publishers were privately warned off them from on high, either on the grounds of national security or with blunt threats of endless corporate litigation. Other books were signed enthusiastically, then dumped, as their own publishers mysteriously failed to market them or even properly distribute them. But it has mainly been the press that stamps out inconvenient books, either by ignoring them or, most often, laughing them off as conspiracy theory, despite their soundness or because of it. Once out of print, these books are gone, even if some few of us have not forgotten them, and one might find used copies here and there, these books have disappeared. Missing from the shelves, and never mentioned in the press, and seldom mentioned even in our schools, each book thus neutralized might just as well have been destroyed en masse, or never written in the first place, for all their contribution to the public good." And that's a passage from Mark Crispin Miller's series introduction to a series of books called the Forbidden Bookshelf series, of which I have, at the moment, just one book. And it's from the beginning of my Kindle edition of the Peter Dale Scott book, Dallas 63, The First Deep State Revolt Against the White House. And like I said, it's one of the best summarizings of this kind of low-key unofficial censorship that is carried out by the media establishment in America, sometimes at the explicit direction of people within the state apparatus, sometimes not, sometimes simply because these people are all kind of involved in a certain amount of groupthink, and anything that's too far outside of their paradigm, they're going to attack even if no one from over at the CIA or whatever tells them to. So I think at least in part, that might explain what happened to Tragedy and Hope, though, of course, over the years since, it's it's attracted quite a cult following. And I just have to say that personally, I still get a thrill whenever I discovered some battered old book that hardly anyone's ever heard of, but that contains some important paradigm-shaking information. Next question comes from Kent in the Facebook group, and Kent writes... What lessons can we learn about peaceful anarchy from the Republic of Kospaya, or Kospaya, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, it's spelled C-O-S-P-A-I-A. All right, Kent, I've got to be honest with you, you get an imaginary commendation from me for asking about something that I was totally clueless about. That's tough to do. And I've got to be honest with you, I've simply never heard of Kospaya before. So, Kent, thank you for bringing this up and letting me know about this. Of course, I immediately Googled it and read a few things about it here and there online, and it certainly seems intriguing and possibly might be a good, relatively modern example of a stateless society doing just fine for quite a long time without turning into Mad Max or Somalia or whatever. 
Now that said, at this point, I'm not going to comment in huge detail about this, simply because my knowledge of it is still very minimal and superficial at this point, basically read a few articles about it on the internet, but certainly there's enough there that I'm intrigued, and I have to say this might be a possible answer to the big question I'm going to have at the end of this episode. So just briefly a sketch of this, if you've never heard of this as well, Cospaia, or Cospaia, however you say it, is a hamlet in Italy that for almost 400 years was an autonomous republic that really in practice was pretty much anarchic. And apparently how this came about was that the Pope, who used to own a good chunk of land, especially in central Italy, sold some real estate to the Republic of Florence in 1440, and a little piece of land containing Cospaia wasn't mentioned in the treaty, so somehow, kind of by default, it was not quote-unquote owned by any political authority, and the people who live there basically declared their independence. And from 1440 until 1826, it was a little tiny autonomous piece of land, and it prospered, in part due to cultivating tobacco there. And it apparently didn't have almost any of the things we think of as essential to a state. It didn't have a police force, it didn't have an army, it didn't have courts, And at least for a while, it seems to have had some sort of an ad hoc council of kind of respected elders who dealt with things like resolving disputes, but that was about it. And so in some ways, it almost reminds me a little bit of how the Old Testament describes the era of the Book of Judges before the Hebrews demanded and eventually got a king and basically got a state. Prior to that, you simply had sort of wise, respected judges who helped settle disputes. So anyway, it appears that this little country in the heart of Italy was basically, for the most part, an anarcho-society for nearly 400 years and did pretty well. And you might say, well, yeah, but eventually after 400 years, it was done away with. It was kind of absorbed and divided up between the Pope and Tuscany. And then eventually when a unified Italy came along 50 years later, it obviously is part of that. So yeah, it didn't last forever. But 400 years is quite a bit longer than most states typically last intact without either being conquered or split up or replaced in a revolution or whatever. So it's certainly an intriguing story that in my mind deserves more investigation. So thanks again, Kent, for bringing this to my attention. Next question comes from Jacob in the Facebook group. And Jacob asks, do you know anything about the historical fiction adventure novels written by G.A. Henty? What other historical fiction have you read, and is there any you might recommend seeking out or avoiding altogether? Okay, Jacob, well, first, I must confess I'm not at all familiar with Henty, so I had to look him up when I got your question. So, for those of you who, like me, don't know him, he was an English writer in the 19th century who wrote a lot of historical adventure novels that apparently were very successful. Since I've not read anything by him, I don't have an opinion on him specifically, but he sounds interesting enough that maybe one of these days, like, I don't know, once I'm done with the Civil War series, I'll try reading something by him, especially considering it looks like, uh, at least as of me glancing at this yesterday, that you can get his complete works on Kindle for $2.99, so... At some point, I probably will check him out. I've always got, you know, 20 million things backed up on my reading list, but he's now on that gigantic list. And I have to say, in general, I like 19th century sort of British adventure writers, whether they're writing about historical stuff or about what 
to them at least was contemporary stuff. So I'm a huge fan of guys like Robert Louis Stevenson and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, for example. So I think it's, there's a good chance I'd probably like Henty. But speaking about historical fiction more generally, I have to say that most historical fiction that I've encountered, I don't like that much because I think I have a very narrow range of balance that I like between the history and the fiction. I've got this sort of sweet spot that if a book isn't in that sweet spot, if a novel's not in that sweet spot, I just don't end up liking it. And it may surprise you, you might assume because of who I am and what I do that I would want books that are way more history than fiction. And in fact, I like it to not be too much of either. I don't like it to be either too much fiction or too much history. If it's way too over-the-top, goofy, fictional with just like a thin veneer of history on it, I don't know, something like Abraham Lincoln Vampire Killer, which on the one hand, I can kind of appreciate it as just sort of like a campy horror movie. But on the other hand, I mean, I don't think it's something that I would ever really get into. So I don't like it to be too fictional, but I also don't like it to be too much just straight up history. Because then I feel like, well, I'd rather be reading an actual history book than reading something that is a fictional depiction, but completely of real things. I like a blend of the two. And like I said, I've got this certain sort of balance that I kind of see as the sweet spot for me, at least. Now, everybody's taste is different, of course. You know, this is a subjective matter. But... I would say that I tend to like historical fiction better when the main protagonist or protagonists of the story are actually not real major historical figures. In other words, the main protagonist may be either entirely fictional or they may be based on a real person or an amalgamation of several, but in general, I don't like historical fiction where the stars of the story are real, major historical characters. So just as a hypothetical example to illustrate this, I would probably not like an historical fiction novel that starred, say, Robert E. Lee. I would likely prefer, all other variables being equal, like writing quality and so on, a book that was centered around one or more enlisted men and or low-level officers in Lee's army and possibly also in the opposing armies, whether such men were entirely made up and fictional or whether they were based on some real you know, low-level officers and enlisted men and so on, I'd rather have a story where it's more from their perspective, where they're kind of the protagonists, and I would rather have a story in which Lee and the other really famous real-life major generals and so on would be kind of in the story, but not the stars. They'd be like the supporting actors in the story, so to speak. And I'm not 100% sure why, but that's what I prefer, I guess, maybe because it tends to lead to more realistic portrayals of the big historical characters, because they're not the stars, and so they're kind of more able to show their imperfections and that sort of thing. And maybe it's because the author is more likely to be creative with characters who are either minor historical figures or who are fictional historical characters that didn't really exist. Maybe it's because the author's more likely to be creative with those sorts of characters than they would be if they focused on the big names that everybody knows about and that there are, you know, a thousand biographies of and so on. That said, again, I'm, I'm okay with major historical figures being in the story. I just generally, at least based on the historical fiction I have read, I prefer them to not be the main central protagonists. 
So some examples of historical fiction that I have liked that I've read, one of course is American Tabloid by James Elroy, which I recently discussed with James Corbett of the Corbett Report on an episode of Film Literature in the New World Order, FLNWO. And you can check that out. I already posted a link to it on my site. I'll probably throw a link in the show notes for this episode as well. You can check out our discussion there to get a feel for American Tabloid. And that's one that I really like. I also like a lot of Stephen Hunter's novels, which he's kind of got two time tracks. He's got a father and son, both of whom are military sniper type guys. And... The track that I've liked the best so far is the older track that's set like back in the 50s and 60s, starring a character named Earl Lee Swagger. And I'm talking about novels such as Hot Springs, Havana, uh, The Third Bullet is very good. It ties into the Kennedy assassination. And I can't say I've read as many of Stephen Hunter's novels that are set in kind of more contemporary times featuring early son Bobley, but I did read and did like the book I Sniper, which features Bobley Swagger. I've not read the book Point of Impact, which was the basis for the Mark Wahlberg movie Shooter. And honestly, regarding the movie Shooter, it's been long enough since I saw that movie. I think I saw it maybe when it was in the theater or right after it came out on video. And I don't think I've seen it since. So honestly, I don't even remember much about the movie. But what I like about Stephen Hunter as a writer is... First off, he's a good writer, which there's a lot of people out there publishing novels, some of whom are even pretty successful, who just aren't that good of writers. And Stephen Hunter, in my opinion, is a good writer of any genre. And he strikes, to my taste, a pretty optimal balance of historical accuracy combined with fiction. And also, unlike the vast majority of successful novelists, and also Hollywood for that matter, Stephen Hunter is actually a genuine firearms enthusiast, and thus his treatment of topics like guns and gunfighting is actually not bullshit. It's actually realistic, he actually understands how these things work, and so on, and that's refreshing as a guy who's not a you know expert tactical shooter or anything like that, but a, a decently good shot and is kind of an enthusiast of the shooting sports. I appreciate someone who actually covers those things realistically and accurately. But on the other hand, unlike a lot of the quote-unquote writers, where they write these novels that you can pretty much only buy at gun shows, and they're like, you know, some kind of even more fantastical version of Red Dawn of a handful of guerrilla fighters taking on Delta Force and winning and all this sort of thing. A lot of those novels are basically attempts to have like instructional manuals on how to fight the government or whatever in some Red Dawn scenario. And a lot of them, I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying all of them that you can't find a novel of this sort out there that isn't, isn't badly written, but in my experience, at least much of these kind of, for lack of a better term, gun show novels out there are just not terribly well written. They're just not. And Stephen Hunter, by contrast, is a good writer, first and foremost. He's a good writer of any genre, by any genre standards. He's not a gun enthusiast and expert who tries to dabble in fiction writing. He is a really good writer who happens to also be a firearms enthusiast. 
And another thing I appreciate about Stephen Hunter is he has a fairly complex, nuanced view of a lot of these things. So even though he seems to be some kind of right winger, basically, and is sometimes a bit more pro-cop and pro-military than I would be, on the other hand, he's not really a mindless apologist for cops in the military. If you read a lot of his novels, he does show people within the law enforcement industry and within the military and also the intelligence world and he does illustrate the intelligence world connecting to the corporate and organized crime worlds and also to the power elite and he does show people from all of these worlds in a negative light in a lot of cases so he's got kind of a more three-dimensional view of a lot of these things in my opinion it's not to say he's like entirely on my point of view as an anarchist or anything like that, but that he's got enough of a complex view that I can read his novels and not feel like I'm reading something that might as well have been written by agents of the Pentagon or something. I'll also mention I've long been interested in, but haven't really gotten around to reading, the historical novels of Gore Vidal, such as... Mainly, in this case, I'm thinking of his Narratives of Empire series about American history that goes from the early 19th century all the way into the Cold War and kind of charts the rise of the more imperial American state during that time period. And my understanding is that Vidal has his main protagonists either be fictional characters or else relatively minor historical characters. And then the really big historical figures like the president and so on are sort of in supporting roles within the story. Again, I've not read these, so this is just my impression based on what I have read and heard about them. But it sounds like something I could get into. And I have to say, I like Gore Vidal a lot as a person and a character and as a speaker. And I've read some nonfiction stuff by him. So I know he's a serious, excellent writer. So that's something that's always been kind of on my, again, my enormous never ending list of stuff to read. As a youngster, I remember liking two historical young adult fiction novels about the American revolution. And that would be April morning by Howard fast and Johnny Tremaine by Esser Hoskins Forbes, but I have to say, I read them over 20 years ago, and I think it was when I was in elementary school or middle school or something like that. So who knows if I would like those books as much today if I reread them. Maybe I would. Who knows? And one last historical novel that I will mention that I think is really, really good and has quite a following in my home state, but maybe isn't that well known outside of it, is a book called A Land Remembered by Patrick Smith. And this is a great historical novel. It's multi-generational. It's set in Florida, and it starts shortly before the Civil War and then goes through three generations of a family in Florida from the, you know, right on the eve of the Civil War into the 20th century. I forget exactly how far forward they go, but they go well into the 20th century. And it tells the story of this family who started off as poor frontier cracker cowboys and eventually over time became wealthy business people and real estate tycoons and all this sort of thing. And it's a good novel that contains a lot of real history, and some of its characters, including some of its central characters, are in fact based on real people from Florida history, but it's also fictional enough that it's not pretending to be a history book. And so A Land Remembered is a great book, and a few things I would quibble with about it, but um, overall, I really enjoyed reading it. I highly recommend it, and it's something that not many people may have heard of if they live outside of Florida. 
So those are just some of my thoughts on historical novels. It's not my favorite genre, but on the other hand, there certainly are examples of it that I really like. But this is one of those areas where everything is sort of subjective, I guess. Next question, I've got kind of two questions from Darko in the Facebook group. And I'll go ahead and and read the whole thing and then kind of answer the questions one at a time. The first question regards possible safe countries to live in. Darko writes, are there any safe countries in case of World War III? Is Switzerland safe because they have everyone's money? Of course, countries that are not poor as dirt. Also, a crazy question, what is the possibility that we are wrong and all the mainstream politicians and economists are right? Okay, so I'm thinking about not only countries that would be likely to not be as damaged if World War III happens, but I'm also trying to think of countries that are relatively nice places to live, even if things never hit the fan. And so not just that they're not poor as dirt, but that they were, there are places that you would look at and think like, that would be a nice place to live regardless. And I have to say, Switzerland has a lot going for it. It's got a lot of freedom in many areas. It's got a history of neutrality. It's the banker to the world, et cetera, et cetera. The only thing I'm not crazy about with Switzerland, oh, it's got, you know, beautiful scenery and all that sort of thing. That's great. The only thing I'm not crazy about with Switzerland, my one reservation about it, is that it is right in the heart of Europe. And while it did manage to stay out of World War One and World War Two, there's never a hundred percent guarantee that it wouldn't be touched directly by a potential World War Three. And of course, if World War Three goes nuclear, which I don't see why it wouldn't, if it truly was, you know, a conflict on that scale, even if nobody directly nuked Switzerland, and I don't see why they would, it's not to guarantee that they wouldn't have horrific effects from you know, all the side effects of having a massive nuclear war that probably would hit much of the rest of Western Europe. So that's my one hesitation regarding Switzerland in the event of a World War III. I'm sure in a lot of ways, it's probably a nice place to live anyway. Also something to keep in mind, of course, is that with Switzerland, there's a language issue for those of us like myself who are only really fluent in English. Now, I get the impression, I've never been to Switzerland, I've been to several other countries in Europe, but I get the impression a fair number of them are at least reasonably good at speaking English, but even so, it's not one of the primary languages in the country. Not that it's insurmountable to learn a new language, but of course, you know, if you're over the age of, I forget, 20 or so, it becomes increasingly hard to learn a new language. Your brain is just not as plastic as it is when you're younger. That's why if you learn multiple languages when you're a kid, you've got a huge advantage over someone who comes into it late in life. But there's a linguistic and to some extent even a cultural gap with Switzerland for those of us like myself who are from the United States or some other place that's very different linguistically and culturally. And the language and culture gap is more significant with a place like Switzerland than it would be for a country such as New Zealand, Australia, Ireland, or whatever, where, yeah, it's it's definitely a different culture than the United States, and obviously it's a different accent and dialect, but it's not as much of a jarring change relative to what it would be moving to a place like Switzerland. And even though, yeah, the accent and the dialect and some of the slang and terminology and so on might be tricky in a place like New Zealand, Australia, or Ireland, overall, though, you can communicate and understand most of what's going on, even if you're fresh off the boat, if you're coming from a place like the U.S. 
obviously none of this matters to someone considering moving to Switzerland who's already fluent in German and or French. They would do just fine. And I also have to say, in Switzerland's favor, they have some of the better gun laws of almost any country outside the U.S., which matters to me a bit, because like I said before regarding the novels of Stephen Hunter, I'm a firearms enthusiast, but if you don't care about that stuff, that doesn't factor into your equation. But my provisional answer, at least as of now, is that while no country is totally safe in the case of World War III, especially, like I said, if it goes thermonuclear, which I think it likely would sooner or later, as soon as one side starts to decisively lose, if they've got nukes, and in any potential World War III scenario, I don't see how it wouldn't involve nuclear-armed countries at least in the mix as part of alliances on both sides. So I don't think any country is necessarily 100% safe if it goes thermonuclear. But I think at this point, at least based on what I know, that the best bet in terms of a place that is a first world country, that is a nice place to live in, even if things never go wrong, and that does have a lot of positive attributes for it on a lot of fronts, and that would be probably one of the last places to get directly touched by a world war, would be New Zealand. It's certainly not a perfect place. I'm sure it's got its problems here and there, but on the whole, looking at it, it's a safe, prosperous first world country. It ranks highly on most categories of freedom, including economic freedom. And while it doesn't have as much of a perfect history of being neutral and staying out of war as Switzerland, overall, it's been much less involved in a lot of the wars in recent times than most of America's close allies. They're not part of NATO which is to the good, I think, in a World War III scenario. And while technically I think the ANZUS pact between the Australians, New Zealanders, and United States is still a thing, when you look at the details, New Zealand is not as tight to the United States as Australia. They've been, especially in recent decades, more reluctant to allow any sort of American military presence. I think very recently the Australians invited in an increased contingent of U.S. military presence in their country. New Zealand has not been that way, and I think since the 80s, they have declared their country a nuclear-free zone. So not only is there no chance of the U.S. basing any nuclear missiles there, they don't even allow nuclear American submarines to come in and use their ports. Also in New Zealand's favor is its geographic isolation. It's even a bit further from the Eurasian mainland than Australia, and overall, I think that's about as remote as you can get from likely conflict zones of a World War III without living in either some god-awful third-world shithole or some kind of place that's so isolated and empty that you can't have a reasonably comfortable life. About the only things that I see negative, at least from my point of view about the country, are... It's gun laws, which aren't as bad as the UK or something like that, but are still a bit more restrictive than my preference, which was like, you know, pretty much no gun laws. And then, of course, there's also the threat of earthquakes. But almost everywhere in the world has some sort of natural disaster potential, whether it's earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes. It's pretty tough to find a place that doesn't have some potential natural disaster, flooding, whatever it is. That said, while I'm somewhat familiar with its history, I've never visited New Zealand and obviously have never lived there, so all my knowledge is academic kind of from a distance. I know I've got some listeners from there, including at least one who is a Patreon supporter and member of the Facebook group. Hey, Troy. And I'm sure Troy and possibly my other 
Kiwi listeners could add a bunch more, good and or bad, about living there. I have to say, it's one of those countries where the people have a reputation for being very laid back and friendly. And I've met a few Kiwis personally, though I've never been to New Zealand, and I found them to be just really nice, likable, good people. And of course, as we all know from seeing Lord of the Rings, the scenery is freaking killer. Now, Australia intrigues me too. There is a lot I like about it. The two things that make me a little bit more uneasy about Australia than New Zealand are, number one, they tend to be closer allies to the U.S. than New Zealand, and also they're physically closer to the Eurasian landmass, so more likely to be directly hit in some way if World War III happens. And all you have to do is look at World War II. I mean, New Zealand sent soldiers to participate in World War II, but as far as I can recall, there was never any direct bombing or invasion of New Zealand and never any likelihood of it happening anytime in the foreseeable future, whereas Australia was a little bit more closer to the mix of the battles in the Pacific and faced a little bit more of a potential for a real threat. One other that I'll mention is the place I went last spring and I'm going again next spring, and that's Ireland. And I think it also might be worth considering... Like Switzerland, it's not part of NATO, which is a plus, although unlike Switzerland, Ireland is a part of the EU, which has some pluses, but also from the perspective we're talking about here could potentially be a minus. Here we're talking about the ability to not get sucked into a major war. Now, it's true that Ireland stayed out of World War II, and they're probably the best country in Europe that is also geographically removed from likely conflict zones. I think the only one that's even more that way, and to me almost it doesn't even really seem like it's Europe, but I guess technically it is, is Iceland. And maybe that's something worth considering. It's got its pluses and minuses as well. I'm not as familiar with the status of Iceland in regard to alliances with other countries that might bring it into World War II, to World War III, so you know I won't comment about that at this point. But Ireland stayed out of World War II, and it's kind of removed from a lot of Europe physically. And they've got a pretty good track record of staying out of a lot of stuff ever since they got their independence. And as with New Zealand, it is a beautiful country that ranks pretty well in many categories of freedom. There's things I don't like about it. It also has restrictive gun laws. In the case of Ireland, I think it's comparable to the UK. There's very little firearms freedom other than a few things that are highly regulated for simple hunting weapons. But on the plus side, it is a small country with a relatively light population density throughout much of it, and a people who have a reputation, in my experience, deservedly for being nice and friendly folks. So that might be worth looking into as well. And again, ranks pretty high on many types of freedom, including economic freedom, at least for the last 20 years. So those are just some of my thoughts on the question of places you could potentially move to to try to sidestep a World War III as much as possible that are also decent places to live otherwise. Now, as to your second question, the one on the possibility of whether folks who think the way I do and probably the way many of you do, that we might in fact be wrong and all the mainstream people are right. Obviously, at the end of the day, I don't believe that or else I wouldn't 
have the points of view that I have. However, I think it's always important to hold out the possibility that you might be wrong and to periodically look at the alternatives and kind of look at them sort of with fresh eyes and an open mind and say, okay, if they're right, then what evidence would I see of this? And if I'm wrong, what evidence would I see of this? And to periodically do this. Because you don't want to get lost in a bubble where you're only interacting with and reading stuff from and listening to stuff from people who already agree with you on everything. You won't want to be in an echo chamber. And for me, it is somewhat automatic that I'm going to be confronted with things I disagree with on a regular basis. Not only because, like most of you, most of my kind of immediate family and other people in kind of my personal physical life don't agree with me on everything, but also remember I work in academia and have been in academia now for close to 20 years, counting the time I spent as a student. And you better believe the vast majority of people that I'm around and that I hear from and that I interact with and so on on a regular basis don't agree with me on very much. And so this is in a way kind of a good thing, I think, for me, because it means that I'm routinely exposed to alternative points of view that are in opposition to mine. And I'll admit that not all opposition to my point of view is created equal. In other words, there are more intelligent and less intelligent arguments in favor of kind of mainstream politics and mainstream even leftism and so on. I mean, there are more rational and reasonable cases for it than others. And let's be honest, part of the reason why academia currently is so messed up is because for the most part, it is just a gigantic echo chamber where everybody agrees with everybody. And one of the few academics who's done some great work on this is the psychologist Jonathan Haidt. His last name is spelled H-A-I-D-T. And he's done some great work. He's, I think, a social psychologist or something like that on how much academia really is an ideologically monolithic echo chamber, and how much this is bad, not only for the academics themselves, but for the broader society, and of course, especially for the students who go through there. I'm glad, personally, that other people in my department at the college where I work don't agree with me on everything, because I think it's good for the students. I think it's good for the students to be exposed to me and then to go to someone who's kind of a standard um, you know, left-wing Keynesian statist or whatever, because it wouldn't necessarily be good for them if they only ever heard my point of view on things. And I'm glad I'm there because, of course, as we all know, there are plenty of colleges and universities where kind of the only variety that the students are ever going to get exposed to are the people who are sort of like mainstream Keynesian Democrat types and then the only, you know, different group from them are the Marxists. So you're getting like FDR versus Karl Marx. That's kind of your options if you have any diversity of ideology at all. So I wouldn't want to work at a school where everyone agreed 100% with me on everything because I don't think that would be good for the students either. But I think it's important, just from the standpoint of critical thinking, to always, in the back of your mind acknowledge the possibility you could potentially be wrong about something, even something that you've put a lot of thought and research into and that you really do believe in strongly, that at least theoretically it could be possible that you're wrong. 
Now, that doesn't mean you get totally logjammed into paralysis by constantly having to start from first principles every time you want to think about something, but that you just kind of, there's a subliminal almost part of your mind that's always like, well, I could be wrong. I don't think I am, but I could be. And then there's probabilities of how much you believe in something and how much evidence you think and and reason and so on there is to back it up. Do I know with absolute 100% certainty that tomorrow the sun will come up in the morning? Technically speaking, I guess I don't. However, I have a lot of good evidence and reason to indicate that it probably will. Now, when it comes to questions of politics and ideology and economics, I don't think anyone can really claim the same amount of certainty that someone could claim that tomorrow the sun will come up on some things. Now, if you're talking about moral reasoning, that's a little bit different, and a lot of it depends on what your premises are and so on. And honestly, that's not as much my area of expertise in a lot of ways than other things. But I think it is important as a critical thinker to at least acknowledge periodically the possibility you could be wrong about any particular thing. Now, it doesn't mean you are, and it doesn't mean you don't believe what you believe. But if you ever become knee-jerk, rigidly dogmatic about your beliefs in a religious fundamentalist sense, like you're, you know, have a fundamentalist religious attitude in regard to your beliefs on politics and economics and these other sorts of questions, I mean, then in a way, you're not any better than the very people that you criticize for being that way in their beliefs. So in a way, you have to kind of exhibit the behavior that you would like to see in others. Otherwise, you're just a hypocrite. And like everybody else, I'm imperfect in this regard. I sometimes have that sort of an attitude of kind of dogmatic arrogance that I've got the answer. I'm as prone to it as anybody else. My point is that I and everybody else listening has to periodically kind of realize this and at least be on the lookout to try to police yourself a bit so you don't become a tunnel-visioned echo chamber inhabitant. And a person that I really like what he has to say on this sort of stuff is philosophy professor Peter Bogosian, who is probably best known recently for being in his own kind of unique way, sort of an atheism activist. But really what he is, is he's an advocate of critical thinking. And in the show notes, I'll link to a presentation of his in which I don't even think he really gets into atheism as much as he's just talking about critical thinking. And I'm, I'm pushing Bogosian here, not because I'm trying in this venue to convert anyone to atheism or anything like that, but simply to say that he's very good on the overall concept of critical thinking. And in this presentation that I'll link to in the show notes for this episode, he talks about his belief that the attitude of critical thinking is actually more important than the skill set. And he summarizes the attitude by basically saying, number one, do you trust reason and evidence? And number two, are you willing to always reconsider what you believe in light of new information or whatever? And again, he says that the attitude, in his opinion, is more important to becoming a good critical thinker than is the skill set or the specific techniques. However, he does go over a few techniques in that presentation. And he kind of says that you can use almost as like a shortcut of critical thinking three questions that you should sort of ask yourself and potentially ask another person if you are confronted with a belief or a claim or whatever that you are not sure of. And the first is, how do you know that? If someone comes up to you and says, if you eat Pez, you'll get cancer. Okay, how do you know that? 
Did you just hear it from some random person or is there more evidence to it? So technique number one, how do you know whatever the claim is? Second is, can you think of counterexamples that would prove the claim wrong? And the third technique is to ask of your own belief, how could my belief be wrong? And see if you could come up with a scenario in which your belief could potentially be wrong. And a few other key points he mentions in this presentation are, first, be willing to admit the things you do not know. I always try. I'm not perfect. Like everyone else, I'm not perfect. But I always do try to make an effort to admit when I don't know something or I'm not sure about something, even though in a way I'm creating this history podcast. I'm trying to put myself forward in a way as somewhat of an expert on some things. But at the same time, if someone asks me about a particular topic or fact or person or whatever in history that I simply don't know that much about or haven't researched very deeply, I have no problem saying, I don't know. I've not really read into that too much. Uh, Sounds interesting, but I just don't have an opinion. I have no hesitation to admit when I don't know. And I have no hesitation admitting on something that I might know a little bit about, but I really haven't delved into enough to have a truly educated opinion. I have no problem admitting that. And frankly, that's a behavior that I've cultivated over the years that I really wish more of humanity would cultivate because I think the world would be such a better place if people were more willing to simply admit when they're not sure about something or they don't know that much about something. Unfortunately, thanks to ego and wanting to try and appear dominant in a confrontation rather than wanting to arrive at the truth, and also the effects of our good friend the Dunning-Kruger effect, most people are resistant to admitting when they're not sure or don't know something. Another key thing Boghossian mentions in the thing I'm linking to is the popularity of a claim has nothing to do with the truthfulness of a claim. That's very important. Another one is, he says, always keep in mind the Dunning-Kruger effect. He specifically brings that up. So yet again, our good friend Dunning-Kruger comes back and he says, keep it in mind both for yourself and for others you may be interacting with that the lack of knowledge oftentimes, the lack of knowledge or expertise on something causes people to overestimate their knowledge or expertise or skill at something. He also points out that people are always infallible when it comes to subjective claims, such as what your favorite food is. You know, no one can really argue if you say my favorite food is chocolate ice cream. No one can realistically argue that dispute that with you, but that nobody is infallible on objective claims. It's always important to differentiate between subjective and objective claims. And the last is that you can assign probability or likelihood to things being true based on reason and evidence, even if you can't always say with absolute 100% certainty. But you can say, well, there's a significant amount of evidence that seems to show this. So these are some of the things I try to keep in mind myself as I'm trying to figure out what I think the truth is about history. But yeah, it's always important, I think, to at least on some level go, I am a fallible human being. I could be wrong about something. So thanks for the questions, Darko. Next question comes from Rainer in the Facebook group. And Rainer writes, I only know the mainstream story of Chris Kyle, but you've mentioned his name a couple of times in a not-so-favorable way. Why? What info am I missing out on? Okay, well, first off, right off the bat, I'm anti-war in general, and I'm only okay with truly, purely defensive violence. 
So right off the bat, I mean, I'm not going to be favorable to this guy, given the war that he participated in, considering the fact that, in my opinion, the 2003 invasion of Iraq was entirely unnecessary and gratuitous and a war of aggression. But even setting that aside for the sake of argument, it's not just that he participated in that war, because there's a lot of people that participated in that war that I don't have nearly as much of a problem with. And personally, I see the individual soldiers, especially the low-ranking enlisted men who are often you know, very young and not particularly worldly and so on when they join up, as in a lot of ways being uh, pawns of the whole military imperial machine. And I realize that they've been raised in most cases since infancy in a particularly strong right-wing denomination of the American civil religion. So I don't think that they're all necessarily bad people, those who have participated in some of these wars. So what is it in particular that I find troubling about Chris Kyle? Well, before I proceed any further, I'll say I don't claim to be a total expert on all the details of the guy. And there are some things about him I I don't think anyone really knows for sure other than him, and he's departed, so um, he took whatever it is to the grave with him. I don't claim to be absolutely certain about all the details of his life and military career. I can't say that I've researched him a huge amount. That said, though, there are several things about him that bug me, and there's one that's kind of definitely on him, and another one that's maybe not entirely his doing, but is more the work of the U.S. government and U.S. media and how they treated him. The first thing I'll mention, and this has been covered by many different people, is he seems to have had a history of lying, at least allegedly. Again, I'm not claiming that I know for certain everything of what happened here, but it seems that there's a pattern where there's a fair amount of evidence that he has told a lot of untruths. And I can't say that I personally know the truth about all of these things, but there's enough of these cases where it seems that Kyle lied about something significant, that there's a pattern. And kind of similar, but in a very different venue to what, like, Hillary Clinton, for example, a person who there's just this track record of dishonesty where even if there's some of the alleged lies that are kind of hazy, you can't quite tell 100% sure if they're a lie. There's enough things where it appears that there's been dishonesty, that there's like a track record. Now, looking at Chris Kyle, there's no question he was a successful SEAL and sniper and a war hero within that paradigm. Now, again, we could all, myself included, question the necessity and the morality of the war in which he fought, of course. But Let's set that aside for the sake of argument and say even within the paradigm of kind of right-wing civil religion and patriotism and so on, this guy has told a lot of what seemed to be tall tales. He apparently lied about finding chemical weapons in Iraq that he claimed had come from France and Germany. He apparently lied about punching Jesse Ventura in the face after Jesse Ventura supposedly insulted him and or other Navy SEALs. He apparently lied about anti-war protesters calling him a baby killer. He apparently lied about killing two guys in the U.S. who were trying to carjack him and then basically using his pull with the U.S. government to get off the hook for getting in any trouble for doing that. He apparently lied about killing looters after Hurricane Katrina in the aftermath of it. And he apparently lied about donating most of the profits from his book sales to charity, which he apparently did not do just to name a few. So there's this pattern of this guy who almost seems to be like a a Clintonian sort of a character when it comes to telling fibs. 
Some people have speculated that Chris Kyle may have been a psychopath or sociopath, and I'm not a therapist. I'm not a trained psychologist. And even if I were, I, I never met the guy personally. And any good therapist will tell you they can't make a diagnosis from a distance of time and all that stuff of someone that they've never met. But I will say, you know, I can't pretend that I could say for sure, but he does appear to have some of the traits of a psychopath or sociopath. He seems to have never in the least bit been bothered by any of the killings he did. He seems to have been, as we've already said, a habitual, perhaps even compulsive liar. And if you listen to Jesse Ventura describing his one meeting with Kyle face to face, the way that Kyle simply refused to behave in a reasonable fashion towards Ventura and to admit his lies and all these sorts of things. Again, it strikes me as very reptilian, almost Clintonian, what the 100% truth is here, I'm not claiming that I know, but there again, there's enough swirling around this guy that it just is pretty shady. And so these are things that like, if you could quote unquote blame anybody, you could blame Kyle himself for these sorts of behaviors and things. But on top of all of that, Kyle, and in particular, the Hollywood depiction of him was obviously very much propagandistic and full of bull. This guy was put on a pedestal as a patron saint for the right-wing variation of the American civil religion, and the right-wing believers of the American civil religion pretty much lapped it up. Now, that's not necessarily Chris Kyle's fault that they chose to pick him as someone to put on a pedestal and to deify and in a way dehumanize, right? Whenever they put someone on a pedestal, it's dehumanizing because then they become this icon. They're not even really a person. But anyway, the vast majority of Americans only know about Chris Kyle from what they get from Bradley Cooper's depiction of him in Clint Eastwood's film. And so... Like so many other sainted figures in the American civil religion, people believe what they want to believe, whether it's actually realistic and factual or not. So the way that he's venerated by so many Americans, especially kind of right-wing types from the South and West, it seems very idolatrous to me. It seems very much in the spirit of what I just talked about in the recent episode, The American Civil Religion. There was an article originally printed on Alternet and then reprinted on Salon that talks about some of the inaccuracies of American Sniper and the film and the lies from Kyle himself as well. And I'll link to several different pieces where some of these things are discussed. To me, it seems like the guy had some real psychological and or personality defects of some sort. Because here's this guy who really was, there's no question, he was a highly decorated and accomplished and successful Navy SEAL sniper, which most people would be happy to like be proud of that. And society tends to see that as a good thing and whatever. So this guy within kind of the standard political ideological paradigm was a hero within that universe. And yet for whatever reason, he couldn't just stick to what the truth actually was as impressive as the truth of his career would be to almost everyone who's, you know, within the kind of conventional ideological paradigms, he still felt the need to apparently stretch the truth. And in some cases, again, what it seems to me anyway, I can't say for certain. It seems like in some cases he flat out made shit up. So 
I would say that even within the kind of civil religion paradigm, when you look at the real person, he's a very flawed choice for a hero. But for their own purposes, the state and their sycophants in the media and Hollywood decided that this guy and his story would make a good one for popular consumption. And so they did, and most people simply believe what they're told at the movie theater. By the way, I'll mention they were initially starting this to happen. They were starting to gear up the machinery to do this with Pat Tillman, the guy who was on track to become a very successful football player. And then after 9-11, quit in a fit of patriotism, joined the army, became a ranger, went to Afghanistan and eventually got killed there. They were starting to gear up to do to Pat Tillman what they did with Chris Kyle. But what happened was it got derailed when the truth came out that, number one, Pat Tillman was actually killed by horriblest euphemism in the universe, friendly fire, and that the government's story about him dying in a brave one-man battle against a whole mess of Taliban fighters to save his unit was actually bullshit invented by the government, and that B, toward the end of his life, Pat Tillman was actually becoming severely disillusioned with America's wars and was basically becoming anti-war himself and was getting ready to go public with these views. Now, if those two facts didn't eventually come out, and they came out relatively quickly before the government really got in full gear with turning Pat Tillman into a patron saint, if those two facts hadn't been exposed, Pat Tillman would likely have been turned into a martyred saint for the American state, and they probably would have made a movie about him where he was the brave one-man Team America fighting off the entire Taliban by himself, but since those facts did come out, relatively quickly after his death, the state and its sycophants in the media just kind of clammed up about him. By the way, for more on Pat Tillman and what happened to him, read John Krakauer's book, Where Men Win Glory, and or watch the documentary film, The Tillman Story. All right, next question comes from Rick in the Facebook group, and Rick asks, Mark Twain is quoted to have said there are lies, damned lies and statistics. Side note, on my office wall at work, I have a poster that I got from Zazzle, Zazzle.com. I have no affiliation with them. I'm just saying that's where I got it. And the poster has like a smiling guy in a uniform and it is like an advertisement for some sort of snake oil salesman sort of a product. It says, Uncle Sam's canned lies, now in three varieties, lies, damned lies, and statistics. So that's on my wall at work. But anyway, back to Rick's question. There must be a corollary in history, he writes. How can the views of history be so divergent? Who has it right? Can they prove it? That's a good question, and it gets into the heart of what the real meat of history as kind of a profession and an intellectual discipline really is. And I would start off by saying that in history, especially at least when dealing with modern history, the basic raw facts of history are rarely disputed as far as like, you know, this law was passed in this year and this president was elected here and this event happened at this time and this treaty happened over here and contained these clauses. Like the basic raw facts are almost never in dispute in modern history. Although I'll admit that sometimes in ancient and medieval history, where there's a dearth of really solid sources, they can be disputed. If you think back to my episode on the Norman Conquest of England, I mentioned in that, look, 
almost all of the significant details of the Norman Conquest, there are disputes about, you know, why did Harold go to Normandy? What actually happened between him and William there, etc.? What actually went down at the Battle of Hastings? How did the Normans eventually get the upper hand? What exactly happened to King Harold? How was he taken out? What happened to his body? Almost anything you could think of significant to that story, there is at least a little bit of wiggle room of what exactly happened when you get to the nitty-gritty. But when you get to more recent times, it's rare that things are that questionable, as far as the basic important major details. Now, you can get into stories where there's a potential conspiracy angle or whatever, and that's kind of different, but in general, the kind of above-board basic history is rarely in dispute. You could get the biggest right-winger historian in the world, and then you get Howard Zinn, and they'd both agree that, like, Lyndon Johnson took over the presidency when Kennedy was assassinated and got re-elected in his own right in 64 and signed the Civil Rights Act. Like, they're not in disagreement about that, okay? So, the things that are disputed even when looking at historical eras for which there is lots of good basic raw information and data, what is disputed there is the significance and the meaning of those raw facts. So the things that seem to get debated the most in history are the causes of important things, the effects of important things, and anything that's related to questions of meaning. So things having to do with interpreting significance or the moral interpretation of something. Nobody's going to dispute that, for example, Lyndon Johnson won a landslide election in 1964. That is a fact. What is disputed is, what does that mean? Was it a good thing or a bad thing? That kind of stuff. Now, history is one of the so-called social sciences, along with disciplines like economics, psychology, political science, sociology, and so on. And I'm not crazy about the term social sciences or the concept behind it, but it's there, it is what it is, it's kind of the standard usage in academia. And the key difference between the natural sciences and the social sciences is that the former deal with things that occur the way they do because of kind of predictable natural forces, natural laws, while the latter deal with things that occur the way they do because of an intentional mind or minds making decisions and acting purposefully, even if those decisions and actions prove to be wrong or mistaken or counterproductive, but still people are making conscious decisions and pursuing actions. So doctors in times gone by prescribed bleeding to cure things like yellow fever and tuberculosis. And today we know that's bad medical advice, but they were still the result of a purposeful consciousness trying to pursue some sort of goal. One of the best places I could point you to where there is a discussion and examination of this difference between the natural sciences and the social sciences is the book Lessons for the Young Economist by the economist Bob Murphy. He's got a great discussion of this difference. So here are some excerpts kind of strung together. Quote, Economics always involves the operation of at least one mind, meaning an intelligence that has conscious goals and will take steps to influence the material world in order to achieve those goals, end quote. And the same could be said equally of the other so-called sciences. A little bit later on in the passage, Murphy elaborates a little bit more on this as follows, quote, Because of their different subject matter, the social sciences focus on purposeful action, while the natural sciences focus on mindless behavior. The objects of study in the natural sciences are fairly simple, and their behavior seems to be governed by a concise set of rules. 
Consequently, the hard sciences can typically rely on controlled experiments to evaluate their theories. This is why it's much less likely that physics will go down a cul-de-sac the way many people think that Freudian psychology or Keynesian economics did, end quote. And another quote from Murphy in Lessons for the Young Economist, quote, Most professionals in the social sciences think that the same method, the scientific method, should be used in their fields as well. However, the problem is that, quite literally, the objects of their study have minds of their own. It is proven fiendishly difficult to come up with a set of concise laws that accurately predict the behavior of people in various circumstances. In the social sciences, especially economics, things are so much more complicated that in many cases it is simply impossible to perform a truly controlled experiment, end quote. And as an example of what he means, Murphy cites how the dispute between Keynesians and Austrian economists over the causes of the Great Depression and the best way to try to deal with the Great Depression, these things can never be truly solved in the same way that, say, a dispute between two physicists could potentially be solved. You can't, for example, rerun the 1920s and 30s with a different set of economic policies in which you control all the other variables but those policies. You can't do that. You can't just replay the 20s and 30s with everything else the same but different fiscal and monetary policies. Can't happen. And I would point out here, just as a side note of my own, that the one social science in which there's at least some potential for some amount of controlled experiments is psychology. But even there, you can run into trouble if you try and treat it in exactly the same way as you would treat, say, a physics experiment. And all the things that Murphy says primarily in regard to economics are equally true of history. If economics, as Ludwig von Mises said, is basically the study of human action, then in a way, history, whether it's overtly economic history concerned primarily with money and exchanges or not, whether it's some other field of history, could be seen as a form of kind of retroactive economics because you're watching people pursue action. So again, it's different from the natural sciences, and history as a discipline really lives in those spaces where there's questions of interpretation, where there's questions of meaning, where there's questions of what's really the cause of this or the effect of that. And then, of course, lastly, in regard to history, you've got the added issues of human emotion, the same human emotions that can make politics and religion such touchy subjects. The fact is, if someone has been inculcated since they were a toddler to believe deep down in the non-rational parts of their mind that their government has always been on the side of the righteous, and they've been taught since that age to deify certain historical figures, then the fact is, by the time they're an adult, it's going to be very hard for them to unplug from those emotions and look at things objectively and rationally. And I know it's hard, because I went through that. A lot of what I believe about history, including things like who the real good guys and bad guys are, these things are very different from what I believed earlier in my life, very different from what I was raised with and schooled in, and in many cases, it's different even than what I thought about these things just 10 years ago. Now, none of that guarantees that all of my views are objectively quote-unquote right, and superior to everyone else's, but it does mean that I've gone through a process of really critically reevaluating 
the things that I was raised with and inculcated with from a young age. And this process of critical reevaluation is not easy. It's uncomfortable. It's something that I think very few people, including most historians, ever subject themselves to, precisely because it's kind of uncomfortable and disturbing. So I think in history, you've got very objective, cut and dry claims that are usually not disputable as far as kind of the basics of what happened and when. But where you've got the real divergence is causes of things. You know, if a war happens, what really caused it? If the depression happens, what really caused it? The effects of things. Okay, did this policy produce good effects or bad effects? Did this war produce good things or bad things? And then last, the kind of significance, the meaning, and or the morality of these things. So that's the best answer I could give to that question. And the last email comes from Ari. And Ari writes, My friend and I were discussing at length the advantages and disadvantages of anarchism as a political order. We were trying to recall an example in history where anarchism or even libertarianism has successfully existed for more than a few years. In fact, the only example we could identify was the anarchist movement circa the Spanish Civil War, which was unsuccessful for numerous reasons. Although I romanticize the idea of true freedom, it seems that anarchism is fundamentally a vacuum that is easily filled by any other type of power structure. In your opinion, what are the best historical examples of successful anarchism, or at least the closest civilizations that were on the right track? How do you think they were successful in establishing that structure, and would any of their strategies be effective today? Okay. There's a lot to unpack here, and some of the specific examples I am going to mention here are things that easily could, and perhaps in the future will, get a full DHP episode treatment. But, um, first off, in regard to the Spanish Civil War anarchist communes there, I have to confess that I'm only vaguely familiar with them, so I really can't comment too much about them here, but I will say... My perception, based on what little I do know about them, is that they were more kind of anarcho-syndicalist and or anarcho-communist communes. So they weren't necessarily the same brand of anarchism that I advocate for, which is kind of individualist or market anarchism, in which the ownership of private property, including private ownership of the means of production, is perfectly fine, as long as that property was acquired justly, meaning without violating the non-aggression principle. And so that would mean that this is property that was acquired either through homesteading something that was previously unowned and unused, or through some sort of voluntary exchange with other people. Though I should point out, individualist anarchism is not at all opposed to people voluntarily forming communities. This is an important point. A lot of times when people hear anarcho-capitalism, individualist anarchism, market anarchism, all these different terms, which have subtle differences between them, no doubt. But when they hear these terms, they think that means that the person is saying that every human being should be an isolated individual island, and that there's really no sense of any sort of community or collective coming together for common purposes or whatever. And that's simply not true. And perhaps that's something that a lot of individualist anarchists have done a bad job of kind of making clear that we're not saying that people working together for common goals or banding together for certain goods and purposes is bad or should be avoided or prohibited. Anarchists of the sort that I consider myself have no problem whatsoever 
with people voluntarily forming communities, societies, collectives, co-ops, communes, intentional communities, any other thing along those lines you can think of. But the key word is voluntary. There's nothing wrong with voluntary association or cooperation, and in fact, it's vital in many instances to human flourishing. So I'm not opposed to voluntary collectivism, if you want to put it that way. But I am opposed to coercive collectivism of any type. I don't believe there is any legitimate moral case for any unchosen positive obligations. Some anarchists who've criticized these Spanish Civil War communes have said that they ended up being, in practice, hierarchical or authoritarian, which is always kind of my concern with any hard-left anarchism, that you might end up with things that are really kind of states or rulers, just under a different name. And to me, just because something is called a commune or a syndicate or whatever else, if it's a coercive society in which some men get to rule over other men and people aren't allowed to go their own way and individually secede, then I'm sorry, but in practice, you've got a state. You can call it anything else you want, but in practice, if it's coercive, that's what it is. And to me, calling a duck a dog doesn't change the fact that it has feathers and quacks. And I'm not saying that necessarily all left anarchists intend for that to happen. And I'm not even saying that I believe that that's necessarily what happened in Spain. Like I said, I'm not an expert on those communes, but it's always a concern that I have with kind of hard left variations of anarchism. So anyway, all that out of the way, in regard to historical examples of anarchism or something approaching it, first off... I would point out that for the vast majority of the existence of the human species, most human beings have lived without being under the control of states, even in the ancient sense of the word state. As Yale University anthropologist and political scientist James C. Scott puts it, quote, Until shortly before the Common Era, by which he means the switch from B.C. to A.D. in the old school way of putting things, until shortly before the Common Era, the very last 1% of human history, the social landscape consisted of elementary, self-governing kinship units that might occasionally cooperate in hunting, feasting, skirmishing, trading, and peacemaking. It did not contain anything one could call a state. In other words, living in the absence of state structures has been the standard human condition, end quote. Now, that is a fact, but of course I can tell from Ari's question that Ari isn't asking about hunter-gatherer societies or anything like that, so I'm going to try to limit my examples I'll mention here to examples of post-Neolithic revolution societies and societies that are at least somewhat sophisticated by the standards of their time period. So... Aside from the Italian Republic of Cospea mentioned earlier in this episode, here are a few societies in history that you could argue were at least quasi-anarchist, if not necessarily embodying every aspect of what a modern individualist anarchist like yours truly would be looking for, ideally. First, I'll mention there was an ancient civilization in the Indus Valley in modern-day Pakistan that may not fit our definition of anarchist entirely, but on the other hand, is kind of interesting from our point of view because it seems to have developed a very sophisticated society by ancient standards without having even the ancient world equivalent of a state. 
In the 3rd millennium BC, a sophisticated civilization arose in this part of the world, and it included such things as complex, fairly large cities, even things like standardization of weights and measures, irrigated agriculture, written language, all the things that the normal version of human history tells us comes about once you have a state. But the fact of the matter is, unlike contemporary and kind of comparably sophisticated civilizations of that time period in Mesopotamia and Egypt, this society, based on the archaeological evidence, doesn't seem to have had things like massive power and wealth disparities, elite ruling classes, or anything really resembling an ancient state. Now, where exactly the order and organization came from, how this society worked things out, is still debated in part because the written language of these people is still not decipherable to us today. So scholars of this ancient Indus Valley civilization still debate exactly what they think went down. Some believe there might have been some kind of version of a very small decentralized republic institution in the cities of this civilization. Others believe there may have been some sort of leadership by religious authorities who may not have had to employ that much overt coercion to kind of keep things organized. I'm not sure, I don't know, but it's intriguing and I think it's worth looking into more. And the fact of the matter is, when you look at similar sophisticated civilizations from that time period, you find obvious evidence of rulers and pharaohs and all all the different things that go along with a state, whereas in Indus Valley civilization you don't. Another case of what seems to be a stateless society that nonetheless evolved a fair degree of sophistication and complexity in the ancient world comes from the ancient society of the Middle Niger River in West Africa from, say, approximately 300 BC to 900 AD. And the current textbook that I use when teaching World Civ 1, which is world history covering from like the emergence of Homo sapien through about 1600 AD, so man, do we have to like gallop through. This textbook actually was the first place that tipped me off to this history of this middle Niger African society. And an anthropologist named Roderick J. McIntosh seems to be the key scholar on this whole thing. In a book that's actually currently on my DHP wish list by him is a book entitled Ancient Middle Niger, Urbanism and the Self-Organizing Landscape. Sounds intriguing. And I think it's important to point out, kind of based on that title, that when we're talking about anarchist societies, we're talking about societies in which there are no rulers. That doesn't mean there are no rules. There are usually rules that are worked out as people interact with each other and deal with each other and settle disputes. And typically, in that sort of a scenario, you tend to get rules that almost everybody agrees are reasonable. Rules like, don't murder people. Don't take someone else's stuff. Don't rape somebody else. That kind of thing. And you get those sorts of rules rather than rules where like the state is trying to micromanage like every last detail of how you live your life and all these sorts of things. Anyway, this society in the ancient Middle Niger region of Africa had pretty sophisticated agriculture, and they had a fair amount of technology for that time period, including some sophisticated ironworking technology, and they developed surprisingly large cities. There was one city that's now a major archaeological site called Geno, which is believed to have had more than 40,000 residents. 
And yet the evidence seems to indicate there was no imperial state ruling over this region. And even the individual cities themselves weren't really city-states, as you find in so many other sophisticated civilizations in the world during the same time period. There seems to have been no vast hierarchies or disparities of wealth and power amongst the people of these cities, and yet they were complex cities and societies. They had a variety of skilled artisans. There was regional economic specializations. Apparently, a lot of the villages and towns specialized in one or more specific economic activities and then traded with each other and so on. And the archaeological evidence shows that this civilization engaged in long-distance trade with other faraway parts of Africa. Now, this society is a relatively recent discovery to modern scholars. I think it's only been really known to modern scholars for about a decade. And in fact, I only found out about it myself pretty recently because this semester was my first time teaching World Civ One since we adopted the book we currently use. And I'll just mention the book in case you're interested. It's by no means from a consistently anarchist or libertarian point of view, but to its credit, the book actually has a surprising amount of parts that are at least somewhat questionable about the inherent goodness and inevitability of state-making. So, you know, in its chapters about the Neolithic Revolution, for example, it talks about the downsides of human beings going from stateless hunter-gatherer ways of life to sedentary, agricultural, and state-ruled ways of life. So, the textbook, if you're curious, is the second edition of Ways of the World, Volume 1, by Robert Strayer, and it's published by Bedford St. Martins. And this is how that textbook summarizes the civilization after going into a little bit of detail about it. Quote, At least for a time, these Middle Niger cities represented an African alternative to an oppressive state, which in many parts of the world accompanied an increasingly complex urban economy and society. A series of distinct and specialized economic groups shared authority and voluntarily used the services of one another while maintaining their own identities through physical separation. End quote. Another example some people have cited of a society historically that was somewhat close to anarchism is ancient Ireland, and specifically the Brehan Gaelic law system and the private system of justice that emerged in Ireland kind of from the Bronze Age on into at least, I think, the early medieval period. And what one finds both there and also in medieval Iceland, which I'll mention briefly in a moment, is that you do have some sort of common societal agreement upon laws based on kind of custom and instinctive notions of right and wrong and fairness. And so you have some ways to settle disputes. But on the other hand, the law in practice is really more kind of private law and civil law. And such quote-unquote leaders, as there are, are simply kind of the most respected people in society, and they don't have anything like the coercive, arbitrary power of a monarch or a president or a prime minister. In some ways, it seems to bear some resemblance to another society some people have argued was kind of anarchistic, which is the Hebrews in the era of the Book of Judges in the Old Testament, in which you had kind of respected wise men who functioned as judges to settle disputes between people, but you didn't have kings and you really didn't have too much else of what people would think of as a state. Now, there were men in ancient Ireland who were known as kings, and there were men in medieval Iceland who were kind of chiefs, but again, it's very far from being a state as we think of it. A great example in some ways, because it was like a self-conscious choice to be anarchist rather than just an evolution of historical circumstance, and also because it endured for 
quite a long time as an anarchistic area is the area that James C. Scott refers to as Zomia, which is basically upland Southeast Asia, the hills and mountains of Southeast Asia. And in his book, The Art of Not Being Governed, an anarchist history of upland Southeast Asia, James C. Scott says that much of this region for centuries deliberately avoided incorporation into any states. And as Scott shows there, these people, they weren't people who accidentally were kind of left out of the progressive sweep and development of history in which, of course, in most tellings of the tale, the rise of states is this wonderful thing and it's the star of the show and it's the center of civilization. What Scott shows is that these people who lived in these stateless areas of upland Southeast Asia for centuries, they were people who deliberately chose to live in places and in lifestyles, including kind of their cultural attributes and so on, to deliberately avoid coming under control of states and to prevent any state from arising from amongst themselves. And in fact, at least some of these peoples originally had lived under states and had escaped to the highlands for freedom. And it was only relatively recently that modern states have gotten the people in these areas under somewhat of control. By the way, Scott points out a bunch of other examples in this book briefly as well, including the Seminole Indians, with which I'm familiar, and a lot of kind of maroon communities where you have escaped slaves who kind of set up their own little free society out beyond the fringes of what the state they escaped from can really conquer and control. But what's interesting about Zomia is if you read The Art of Not Being Governed in Ari, I recommend if you've never read it, you really should check it out. I think you'll really enjoy it. That... These societies in Zomia seem to have deliberately structured their society and their culture and their beliefs and so on in such a way as to make them what James E. Scott calls state-resistant societies and state-resistant areas. And it didn't work indefinitely, but man, it lasted a long time these people were able to keep themselves free. Another example that some libertarian and anarchist scholars have pointed to is medieval Iceland, specifically from like the 9th through the 13th centuries AD, where Iceland was in a period referred to as the Commonwealth, during which, while I guess, and I'm not an expert in this, I've read a little bit of it, but you could argue it's not a pure anarchic system, but it had a lot of characteristics of an anarchy, and it didn't really have anything like a true state, even by contemporary standards of the time period. And it seems to have some similarities to ancient Ireland in terms of you've got kind of sort of a legal system, but it's not the same thing as a state legal system. It's almost more of a private slash civil dispute resolution system and so on. And like I said before, you've got sort of chiefs and things, but they're not the same as state rulers. Some would also argue that the so-called free cities of medieval Western Europe had a lot of elements specifically of anarcho-capitalism, and that the markets there were quite free by the standards of back then, and many of the services that today people believe that only the state could provide were actually provided privately for quite a long time in some of these cities. Another example some would point to is the American Old West. Now, it's true that technically the United States government claimed sovereignty over these territories and peoples, but the reality is that as long as you were out or beyond the kind of frontier line, 
in practice, a lot of people in the American West really lived in a state of anarchy. I mean, you were in a situation where there might be like one marshal or sheriff or whatever for like, you know, the entire what we would think of today as state of Montana. And the reality was, if you were a rancher or a miner or whatever out there, you basically lived in a state of anarchy in regard to other people and so on. And it's really important to understand that anarchy in the sense that people like me mean it doesn't mean random chaos and people rampaging around and pillaging each other and whatever. In fact, we would tend to see the behavior of states and those connected with them who benefit from them as being much more of causing disorder and chaos and pillaging and so on. Anarchy doesn't mean disorganized. What it means, though, is voluntarily self-organized from people themselves interacting with each other, rather than having some sort of arbitrary order imposed from above by a small coercive group. And very often on the American Western frontier, out in the areas where the government didn't really have any real reach most of the time, you find people frequently working together to come up with their own kind of norms and rules and their own ways of dealing with people who transgress accepted behavior and so on. You can see this in the wagon trains, which kind of would have their own little contracts of acceptable behavior and rules and so on. You can also see it in a lot of the frontier mining camps where things like the standards of how do you claim a particular spot for mining? You know, they, they would work these things out organically between themselves without having Having Leviathan over them imposing all the regulations. And I'll link to an article, and there's also a book expanding upon it called The Not-So-Wild Wild West, and this will be linked to in the show notes for this episode. Some would also argue that the Israeli kibbutzim were basically voluntary anarchist collectives, and to be honest with you, I've not studied them enough to have an educated opinion about them, so I'll just throw that out there, but I can't really elaborate more at this point. But all that said... While some of those societies that I've just mentioned lasted for centuries, certainly one could say none of them had lasted forever. However, on the flip side, I'd point out there's never been a state that's lasted intact in one form indefinitely either. There's always interruptions, even in the same place that appears to have a relatively stable government for a long time. There's always interruptions. There's collapses. There's conquests from outside, there's revolution, and then of course there's what's known as revolution within the form, where the surface appearance of a state appears the same technically, but when you look at the reality of the substance of it, something is drastically changed. Which I would argue that the United States has gone through multiple revolutions within the form, even though we're nominally still under the same constitution as 1789. I would argue multiple revolutions within the form have occurred over those 200 plus years. So no state really survives intact in pristine shape indefinitely either. Even the states that appear to have lasted for a ridiculously long time, they really haven't in most cases. When you look into the details and you look at these ruptures, you look at collapses, conquests, revolutions, revolutions within the form, etc., it's also true, I would agree, that none of the historical instances that I've mentioned here have all of the characteristics of a free society that somebody like me would have in mind that we're talking about. So in that sense, I'd concede that what someone like me is arguing for, while it does have some historical precedence for some aspects of it, it's not something that's ever been fully formed into existence so far in human history. 
I think parts of it have existed. I think we can point to those as useful examples and illustrations. But the fact that what I'm advocating for hasn't ever fully existed doesn't deter me. And the reason it doesn't is because you could say that about anything that hasn't yet been devised or implemented or developed. Just as an example, as an analogy, until relatively recently in human history, every single complex society on earth had at least some form of slavery as an important part of its society and its economy. So a few centuries ago, someone could, and many people did, ridicule a radical troublemaker who was an abolitionist by arguing along the lines of, hey, if abolitionism is superior to slavery, then why does every civilization on earth have slavery, and why do all the great civilizations of history have slavery, huh? And I think the answer to that question in that particular time period would be A, because powerful people benefit from slavery right now, so that's why it's always there, and they're not going to give it up unless people have a change of morality and kind of make them give it up. And secondly, it exists everywhere because pretty much everybody, including the slaves themselves, is inculcated and habituated from infancy to think that slavery is normal and natural. So the fact that slavery was the norm for thousands of years of human history didn't mean that those who suddenly had an awakening and said, oh my gosh, I realize this is wrong, we should work to try to end it that those people weren't on the right side of history and shouldn't have been listened to. So what I have in mind is ultimately, in its totality, different. It's a post-Enlightenment, post-scientific and industrial revolution, post-internet revolution, stateless society that has all the benefit of all of those scientific and technological and philosophical developments and changes and innovations, in which the best elements of the old, some of the elements of some of those stateless societies or arguably stateless societies I've mentioned before, are brought back, and the best elements of the new are combined in such a way as to liberate the individual from institutions that are really, in a lot of cases, just relics from bygone eras. And again, I don't think that everything from the past is bad. I think there's a lot of good things we can learn from past civilizations. But to just have an institution like the state simply preserved indefinitely, long after the era in which it, at least to some people, seemed to make sense, is problematic. I mean, most of the concepts behind the state are relics of the Bronze Age and the Iron Age, and in a few details at the latest, from the kind of horse carriage and muzzleloading musket age. And I think that the biggest thing holding people back from being able to govern themselves is the belief that they need someone to govern them. People only need rulers, I think, because they think they need rulers. Now, in order to get something more along the lines of what I'm striving for, I think you would need a people who didn't just get statelessness kind of by default or by historical accident, as a lot of the societies I just mentioned, you could argue, did, but people who kind of more like James Scott's Zomians consciously rejected the state and organized their society around preventing it either from arising from within them or from invading them and conquering them from without. And in my opinion, in my belief, all of this would require a philosophical awakening and a mental one-person-at-a-time revolution above all else before it's even possible. 
And at the end of the day, that sort of an awakening and revolution within each individual is what I'm trying to add my little two cents to here. It's what I'm trying to contribute to in my own very small, very humble way. And I just think a society of feisty porcupines who understand both what they're for and what they're against on a very deep philosophical and emotional level would be a society that once established would be, in my opinion, very, very hard to subjugate. So I guess in closing, those are my thoughts on that. I'm sure some of you listening could cite other historical examples of anarchistic or at least quasi-anarchistic societies, but I think this episode has gone way more than long enough. I hope I've made up for lost time when it comes to listener questions episodes. By the way, the show notes are going to be truly monumental in proportion to the length of this episode, full of web links and Amazon affiliate links to all the kinds of stuff I've been talking about. So definitely, if you're not in the habit already of looking at the show notes, definitely you want to check this one out. It'll be profcj.org slash ep125. profcj.org slash ep125. Thank you for listening. I hope I've not wasted your time. I hope you've found this worth listening to. As always, whether you agree with me or not, I hope I've given you some food for thought. And above all else, I would just urge you, think for yourself Be a critical thinker. That's the most important thing. If you liked what you heard in this podcast, there are multiple ways you can help this show continue to exist, to improve, and grow. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast in any way you can. Social media, online discussion boards, word of mouth, whatever. But to help spread the word to people you think might appreciate it. Also consider leaving a review or a rating in podcast venues such as iTunes or Stitcher. And you can help the show financially several different ways. One of the best is to go to patreon.com slash profcj. Patreon, by the way, spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patreon.com slash P-R-O-F-C-J. Sign up to support the show with a per-episode donation. If you sign up there for at least $1 per episode, and more is certainly appreciated, but for at least $1 per episode... I'll thank you by name in the next show that I record, and you'll have access to special, exclusive, bonus Dangerous History Podcast episodes via Patreon that are available nowhere else. So it's a win-win. You get some extra Dangerous History Podcast, and I get some help in keeping on, keeping on with the show. Also, if you're a supporter of the show on Patreon at a dollar or more per episode, you are eligible to join the private Facebook group entitled Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors. By the way, side note, if your name is different on Patreon from what it is on Facebook, please do contact me if you apply to join the group to let me know who you are on Patreon so that I can verify you're a supporter and then I'll be happy to let you into the group. You can go to the show's donate page, profcj.org slash donate, to find other ways to help the show out financially, including PayPal and Bitcoin donations. And of course, you can help the show by purchasing items from Amazon by first going through any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website before you do your shopping. And if you do that and buy anything from Amazon, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission from Amazon at no additional cost to you. One final thing you can do if you want to help out the show is to check out the official Dangerous History Podcast Amazon wish list, where you can order items to help me help the show. And if you do that, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I make after receiving your item. Make sure to check out DangerousHistoryPodcast.com if you haven't already to find the show notes for this and every other DHP episode 
which usually include lots of links and things like that. Good stuff. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.